Hello and welcome to Top Telehealth Tips and Lessons Learned, part of the Telehealth Learning and Discussion Series for Substance Use Disorder Treatment and Recovery Support Providers. This project is brought to you by the Addiction Technology Transfer Center Network, the Center for Excellence on Protected Health Information, the National Consortium of Telehealth Resource Centers, and the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's speaker is Mary Ellen Evers, a registered telebehavioral health clinician for mental health and addiction services and a telebehavioral health trainer for the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies. Ms. Evers discusses the top five best clinical practices for treatment with telehealth. Welcome to the show and let's get started. Okay, so, you know, we, we're looking at what, what's the main five things we got to do clinically to have the most sound and, and ethical practices right now as we're going through this situation. Number one is not necessarily a clinical skill in this modality. It's the front end, but it is really important to be sure that you are in compliance with your licensing board and having the proper informed consent. As I alluded to earlier, you know, the language is different in the informed consent when it comes to telebehavioral health. Again, I I refer everybody to SAMHSA Tip 60. That is a wonderful starting point. If you're new to telehealth and you don't know where to go, that's a great place to at least kind of get some groundwork. But the biggest thing I learned when I learned about telehealth some years ago was your malpractice insurance has to include telebehavioral health. Um, every insurance is different. Some are already including it within their, their uh, policies. But if you're going to be providing professional practices, LPCs, LCSWs, make sure your malpractice insurance includes covering you for telebehavioral services. Um, checking about your your folks' online life, right? People walk in, we see them face-to-face, but many folks that we work with also have what we call online life. Those who are probably under 35, we consider a digital native, while those of us who are older from another generation, we are considered digital immigrants. So we have to be mindful of what generation really and what comfort level the person has that we're going to be suggesting the use of telebehavioral services to. It's very, very important to understand that telebehavioral health therapy or services, it's not cookie cutter. There are some clinical diagnoses where this modality of treatment may not be beneficial. As a matter of fact, it could be more harmful. So you've got to be mindful that you just don't go through your your caseload and automatically make everybody go telebehavioral health. You've got to be careful with looking at what issues they're dealing with. You've got some folks who are dual diagnosed. Quite frankly, I've got a few of my patients who have a history of ongoing suicidal and homicidal ideations. You know, for me in my practice, telebehavioral therapy is not appropriate for them. We've had to come up with alternatives. You also need to consider medication and the work that the folks you're dealing with or working with may have when it comes to psychiatry. So again, it's not cookie cutter. You really have to kind of parse out who would benefit from and who is the safest to do telebehavioral health with from the clinical perspective. This is real important, patient safety, right? Because I can't control the environment and by the click of a, of a button, someone can leave my session. So I have to plan for emergencies. One of the mottos is we plan for the worst and hope for the best. And usually the best is what happens in your telehealth sessions. But it is really important to come up with a safe word, um, a safety plan, 
and make sure you get a proper emergency contact. So just to kind of go over kind of a broad kind of safety plan that I use, quite frankly, I let someone know that I'm going into a telehealth session and I do this, you know, before my session even occurs. I throw a do not disturb sign on my door. I make sure I can see a clock because depending on the program you're using to to do your sessions, you may lose sight of the little timepiece at the bottom right corner of your screen. It's really important to make sure all of your own distractions and computer programs are shut down. Mm-hmm. You've got to make sure you've got a good microphone, a good camera, and then you invite your, your patient into the practice through whatever means platform you're using. But when I start a session, I check out where the patient is. Now, 99% of the time, they are at the address that they provided me in my informed consent. But if I do notice that they're someplace different, I need to check in with them to find out where they physically are. And I need to make sure I have a decent phone number where I can reach them and they can reach me. And I go over that with them in the first couple minutes of our clinical session. I ask them, are you there alone? Is anyone with you? Again, Sandus made the point before that they have the right. It's their information. So they very well may, may say, well, my daughter's here in another room and I'm okay with that. And then we just kind of go over this idea of a safe word. A safe word is really handy because personally, I use the word coffee with all the people I work with. So if my patient says I need a cup of coffee, I stop talking. This way, if somebody is around them or an earshot of their computer, it's kind of this the secret way of letting me know that they don't want the person to hear me speaking. But more times than not, my patient and I come up with the, the safe word that they're comfortable using. Honestly, you know what? It sounds simple. You just click end the session, but it's not always so simple um, because it does happen. You might think you're ending a session and you don't. You've got to be really mindful that when you do end the session that, you know, you end the session, you disconnect your your headset and you let others know off your you're off that that telehealth session. You would be surprised at the things you hear when you think you're unplugged, when you're not really unplugged or the things that they could hear if you don't completely sign off. So, you know, just kind of going back to that safe word, um, I use it when with the folks when they're unable to talk. I also use it when my folks are feeling unsafe. You know, once I hear, again, that word coffee, which is the one I use, uh, you know, I'll wait a few minutes and very often they'll say to me, okay, you know, I got my coffee or they'll say I need more coffee and we come to this safety plan where uh, we will end the session. And then I have their phone number to be able to follow up with them. It's really important also to have a safety plan, you know, and don't rely on 911 at any means right now. And don't necessarily rely on, well, you can just go to the hospital because of this pandemic. A lot of rules and regs and normalcy that we used to, you know, take for granted are changed now. Um, It's also really important to make sure you have, in a case of emergency, contact number in the emergency plan. But here's the piece. Most people will will put their significant other or parent on the paperwork that they'll fill out in my office. That may not be their emergency person when it comes to telebehavioral health. Real quick example, if I have kids who are in college, they have to identify somebody at the college as their emergency person. And I clinically have to make sure that I have a release of information so that if something does happen, I can reach out to that emergency contact. And finally, you know, the the number five kind of clinical best practice is just be prepared. You're going to hear different verbalizations. Teletherapy is exhausting. Quite frankly, I would do six or seven patients in a row Uh, when I do face-to-face sessions. Right now, I do two hours on, one hour off. 
So two sessions on, one hour to catch a breather, two more sessions. You speak differently, you observe differently, you listen more intensely, and also keeping in mind that at a click of a button, anything can happen. The patient could leave the session, um, a family member could walk in, you might have technological problems. So it's just, you know, really being prepared to kind of navigate whatever comes your way. I've had people sign on to, to telehealth sessions, which is boxer shorts on, quite frankly. Um, I've had somebody log in uh, at Walmart because they didn't want to miss their session and, and they were you know, fearful that you know, they were going to get a no-show charge. So they logged into their telehealth session while pushing a cart at Walmart. Um, it's knowing how to best handle those situations because you just never know. So we expect the unexpected when it comes to, to telebehavioral health. Thank you so much for joining us today. For a transcript of this podcast, presentation slides, and other related resources, please visit our website at www.telehealthlearning.org. This podcast is supported by funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and Health Resources and Services Administration. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the presenters and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS, SAMHSA, or HRSA. Information shared and views expressed reflect the speaker's best understanding of science and promising practices and should not be seen as directives. We encourage all listeners to reflect on the context discussed during the series and to take that information to colleagues and or supervisors for further discussion, especially in the context of state rules and regulations. In addition, content related to privacy and security and 42 CFR Part 2 presented during these sessions should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners are directed to discuss recommendations with their agency's legal counsel. Finally, listeners should consult SAMHSA resources that provide additional information regarding delivering services virtually. Once again, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us again.